Good morning. It is good to see everyone here this morning. As you can see on the screen, uh, no pun intended, uh, as you can see on the screen, we are going to have a sermon this morning entitled Vision Correction. If you would, uh, grab a Bible and turn to Matthew, the seventh chapter. We're going to take our text this morning from Matthew, the seventh chapter, uh, the first 12 verses of Matthew, the seventh chapter. Matthew, the seventh chapter, starting in the first verse. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Over the last couple of years, I have learned more about my eyes and your eyes and vision than I ever knew before. For most of my life, I had been lucky enough that I had never, never had glasses, never had contacts, never, uh, never had to deal with anything like that before. And Angelo uh, is the same way. Neither of us never really had any issues with our eyes. But when John was three years old, we found out that John needed to have some glasses. The doctor had run some tests and recommended getting him fitted for a pair of glasses to help correct uh, his vision. Before that happened, I couldn't have told you the difference between uh, being nearsighted or farsighted. I couldn't tell you uh, what you needed to do to go get a pair of glasses. I I barely even knew that we had vision insurance. but I've learned quite a bit over the last couple of years. In, in about a year ago, um, one of my first official signs that I'm getting old is that I was given a prescription for a pair of reading glasses uh, by the doctor. And so I've had to, had to learn a little bit about my own eyes. Uh, many of you has, are more familiar, more aware of, of vision and, and things like that. 
uh, than Angela and I are or were. Lots of you have glasses or contacts. Some of you have had laser beams uh, shot at your eyeballs to fix or correct your vision, and some with mixed results. Um, Most of you, or all of you, I think, if you go to public school, uh, have taken an eye test, something that looks like this. Uh, something that you can look and read the lines on that chart, and a doctor can, can tell from, from the results of that test whether you have 20-20 vision or 20-10 vision or 20-40 vision or, or whatever it is. Perhaps your vision isn't as well as it used to be, and the chart looks like that when you read it. Vision correction is a huge business in the United States. We take it very seriously. Vision correction is a $36 billion a year industry in this country. If you can't see, you can't read, you can't drive, it impacts uh, your ability to work, it impacts your performance at school, it impacts your ability to use a phone or a computer. Life changes dramatically if your vision is compromised. We take our vision very seriously, and if something is wrong with it, we take steps to correct the issue. But what about our spiritual vision? If you look back earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew, the 6th chapter, in the 22nd verse, he said, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. What we look at, what our focus is on from a spiritual perspective, what our spiritual vision is fixed upon has a dramatic effect on our heart. If our spiritual vision is focused on the light, then our spiritual body, our spiritual life will be full of light. But if our spiritual vision is fixed on darkness, our whole lives will be full of darkness. And as we get into the text that we read this morning, Jesus begins to build upon this idea and this theme. It's important to realize uh, the context of, of of the passage that we read this morning. It's important to place it in its proper context within the Sermon on the Mount. The, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just some disjointed collection of sayings and snippets of, of, of the teachings of Jesus. It's a sermon that builds upon a central theme as it moves throughout the different sections of the sermon, but it's all centered upon and builds upon a specific theme. And that theme is the life of a disciple of Christ. Life in the kingdom of Christ is the theme of the sermon, with God at the center and the heart of what a disciple of a disciple of Christ should look like. And as Jesus moves towards this latter part of the Sermon on the Mount that we read this morning, he builds upon this as he builds toward the conclusion of the sermon. And he focuses in on this idea of what happens to our spiritual vision. What happens as we allow God to either take control of our lives and our hearts and where that leads us, or what happens when we decide to make our own will and our own desires the center of our lives like the Pharisees did. But remember what determines the condition of our spiritual vision. What 
forces our spiritual eyes to be either fixed on ourselves or on the cares of this world. It is our heart. It is our heart that decides where our spiritual vision is fixed. And you might ask, well, Jeff, what is the heart? We hear that a lot uh, in Scripture. We hear it a lot talked about. We hear that this idea of, of the heart. What do we mean when we say that? The heart, from a spiritual perspective, is what you are deep down in the secrecy of your thoughts and your feelings. The part of you that nobody knows except for God. It is your spiritual core. A man by the name of Andy Stanley once wrote, Our heart is what controls our spiritual lives. It seeps into every conversation. It dictates every relationship. We live, parent, lead, relate, romance, confront, react, respond, instruct, manage, problem solve, and love from the heart. Our heart impacts the intensity of our communication. Our hearts have the potential to exaggerate our sensitivities and our insensitivities. Every arena of life intersects with what's going on in our hearts. Everything passes through on its way to whoever it goes. Everything. Our heart is what determines if you are going to live a blessed life that Christ talked about in the Beatitudes during the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. The heart's what determines if you'll have a, have a proper attitude towards God's will and God's law, or whether or not you fulfill the law as God intended, as he talks about in the latter half of chapter 5. The heart will determine your motives, like he talks about in chapter 6. It'll talk, the heart will determine if you have an anxious life, consumed with the cares of this world as it talks about at the end of chapter 6. And the heart will determine the condition of our spiritual vision, where our spiritual vision is focused. Your spiritual vision is an indicator of the condition of your heart. And your spiritual division, vision, <coughs> excuse me, your spiritual vision will determine if your life is full of light or if it's full of darkness. So, for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at three things about spiritual vision. Three aspects of our lives that having proper spiritual vision will drive. And what the results of having godly vision does. And the results of having that vision clouded by the cares of this world. Three things that if we will fix our eyes fix our spiritual vision, correct our spiritual vision, it will allow us to be the disciples of Christ that God intends us to be. The first thing that correcting our spiritual vision helps us do is that it helps us see God clearly. And that might seem like an elementary thing uh, to think about, But how you view God is vital to your relationship with Him. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends quite a bit of time discussing who God is and and the nature of of God. It's one of the themes uh, 
that runs throughout the sermon. And here in a minute, we'll discuss what the nature of God and who, who God is that, that Christ is talking about. But first, if I were to ask you, who, who is God to you? What is God to you? How would you answer that question? What would you say? How would you answer this question of who is God? How you approach the answer to that question greatly impacts and shapes your relationship with God. In 2010, two professors at Baylor University named Paul Frost and Christopher Bader, in their book, America's Four Gods, conducted a survey. And they asked the respondents of this survey, how do you view God? They were asking, basically, who is God to you? The results of this survey said that 28 percent viewed God as a, quote, authoritative God, a God that's very judgmental, very engaged in the world. I call this the, the, the dictator God, of the, the dictator of the universe God, the God that rules this world and the people in it with an iron fist, you know, someone that's, that, that will strike down anybody that goes against God and anyone that crosses him. Is that how you view God? 22% characterize God as a, quote, benevolent God. Someone who's thoroughly involved in their, in their lives, but, but isn't, isn't going to strike anybody down, isn't stern. You know, somebody that you can have a personal relationship, like, like a friend or a companion. You might call this the, the grandfather God. The old man uh, with, the, with the beard that sits us down on his knee and bounces us. The old man that, that, views, the, that views us like children, like, like a granddad, like view their grandson. A God that views us as, as perfect little children that, that, are, that are here to be spoiled and given whatever we want. 25% people believe in a critical God, somebody who's removed from the daily events of this life, but one day will render judgment. And then 25% view God as a, quote, distant God who set the universe in motion, created everything, and, and pressed play, and, and has stepped back and doesn't take part in the day-to-day workings of our lives or this universe. And I think that there are even a couple other classifications, things that, ways that, that people view God. You know, some people view God as, as their parachute. A parachute guy, you know, someone that you stuff down in a sack and put him on your back, and when you jump out of the plane and you really need him, then you can pull the ripcord, but other times you stuff him down in the sack and you don't really want him around. Some people view God as the, the genie in the bottle God, someone that when you really want something, you can rub the lamp a couple of times, and, and God will pop out and give us all of our wishes, and then when he's done giving us our wishes, we stuff him back in the bottle, and we don't want any part of him other than that. Is the, are these how you view God? I hope not. A.W. Tozer once said, Much of our difficulty as seeking Christians stem from our unwillingness to take God as He is and adjust our lives accordingly. Jesus knew that people had trouble viewing God in the proper way, so He addresses that here in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, Jesus, throughout the sermon, refers to God as our Father. 
You can see that there in Matthew, the fifth chapter, in the 45th verse, and then again in Matthew, the sixth chapter, in the eighth verse. And again, here in this section that we read here this morning, Jesus talks about the fatherly aspects of God. If you look back at the 11th verse that we read this morning, he talks about how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him. God is a loving Father that provides for his children and he cares for them. And he loves his children so much that he was willing to give everything, including the gift of his Son, for us. But in addition to being our Father, God is also our Judge, which is a primary theme in this passage. Do you view God as both your Father and your Judge? The terrible thing for the unbeliever is that he is both Father and Judge. When you reject God as your judge, you also reject His fatherly love and His grace. And you re- when you reject Him as your Father, one day you will encounter Him as your judge. But for the believer, for the Christian, the idea that He is both Father and judge should be a comforting thought for us. Knowing God as your Father comforts you to know that the Creator of the universe loves you as one of of His children. And knowing God as your judge should help you as you navigate this life, to help you restrain you and to sanctify you and, and guide you through this life. Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, verses 17 through 18, says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger and giving him food and raiment. When we conform our hearts to view God in this way, as the God of gods, as our loving Father, and as our righteous judge, when we correct our spiritual vision to view God in the proper light, it will change who we are. It will change how we view His Word. It will change how we view our responsibilities to Him and our relationship with Him. It will change our families. It will change our marriages. It will change how we view our roles as husbands and wives. It will change how we parent. It will change our our view as moms and dads, as children. It will flow into our jobs and into our schoolwork. It will change our hearts. It will mold us into the disciples of Christ that Jesus has been describing here in the Sermon of the Mount. The second thing that we need to notice and think about our spiritual vision and what it correcting our spiritual vision will do is that it will help us to see others in a godly way. Jesus begins this section of the Sermon on the Mount with probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, right? 
a scripture that probably every friend of yours, every co-worker of yours, everybody that's ever darkened the doors of a church and ever sat on a pew for any amount of time, and lots of people who have never been to a church service could quote you Matthew, the seventh chapter and the first verse, where it says, Judge not that ye be not judged. And this is the scriptural force field that people will throw in your face and try to justify something in their life. Who do you think you are? Don't judge me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what I can't do. Jesus told you that you can't judge. So if you're a Christian, you can't judge me because Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. So leave me alone and I'm going to go on with my life. I'm going to do what I want and you can't tell me what I can do, right? Is that what Jesus is talking about in this verse? Is Christ prohibiting us from forming an opinion about the motives or actions of someone else? Of course not. If you read a little bit further, Jesus says just a few verses later, he says not to give dogs that which is holy. How are we supposed to know who are the dogs and pigs that Jesus is talking about? Some sort of judgment or determination has to be made in order to do that. And in other places, for example, John the 7th chapter and the 24th verse, Jesus says to judge. He said, judge with a righteous judgment. So obviously Christ doesn't prohibit us from making any sort of judgment on the actions of other people. So what is Jesus saying here? The word judge used here means to condemn He's telling us not to cultivate a harsh or a bitter, fault-finding spirit that looks, for other, looks on other people trying to find evil, trying to find fault in others so that we can point our fingers at them and say, look at how bad you are, look at what you've done. He means that we shouldn't try to condemn others based on our own personal views of them. We should love our neighbor. And we should love our enemy. Now that does not mean, that, that, does that mean that, that we should never point out anything that they're doing that's wrong? Would I love John and would I love Luke if they were doing something wrong and I just ignored it and let it go? You know, Jesus told me not to judge. He told me not to condemn. He told me not to to judge. So should I just ignore John's behavior or Luke's behavior if it is something that needs to be corrected? If I did that, I would not love my children. And one of the most unloving things that we can do is if we see someone that we love headed on a road that will lead them to hell one day, And we just let it go and ignore it because we're told not to judge. When the boys are doing something they need to be corrected, I try in a loving way to point out that behavior that needs to change. And we as Christians are charged with doing the same thing with others around us. We live in a sick and a dying world that needs to be told about their need for a Savior. And part of that is the sin in their lives that needs to be corrected. But there is a right way 
And there is a godly way to teach the world about their sin. And there is a wrong way. And there is an unloving way. And there is an ungodly way to try to teach other people. I think a major problem that we have, though, is that we view others in an ungodly way at times. Our spiritual vision is clouded towards others around us. And when I say we, I don't mean we in a general sense. I don't mean we as Americans. I mean we, unfortunately, at times as, as in the church. Often we see what's going on in somebody's lives and perhaps they're having a hard time and they're struggling with some sin and we see that person as some sort of low-down, dirty, rotten sinner that can't get their life right, that keeps on messing things up. Why can't that person just do what God says? Why can't they quit messing up their life? Or we see other people in the church and we see things that they're doing and, and we question their motives, even if they're trying to do something good. We view other people in the church at times, not as brothers and sisters as, as in Christ trying to work together and, and, and things like that, but instead, sometimes we view each other as political rivals. How sad is that? How destructive is that in the church? Or we see other people in the community or in other places and we view them not as souls that need to be shown the love of God and His will for them. Rather, we see them as enemies that need to be defeated. I have especially noticed this over the last couple of years. For whatever reason, maybe it's like we discussed a few months ago, uh, the, the social media world that we, that we live in or the political climate that we find our country in or the pandemic or, or whatever, I have seen people in the church say and think and do things that are unquestionably unchristian in the name of winning an argument or proving a point. And the problem is, is that our hearts aren't right and it has clouded our spiritual vision. And that has made it so that we can't view other people around us as God intended. And we get into a situation where we're looking so hard for those specks that are in other people's eyes that we can't even realize the log that is in our own eyes. And what can often happen is that we end up condemning someone for the same things that we have in our own lives. We point our fingers at someone and say, look at that gossiper. Did you hear what they said? And then you know what we do? We turn around and we go tell somebody else the latest bit of juicy gossip that we heard. We talk about how people are rude or harsh and unloving, and then we go home and we're rude and we're harsh and we're unloving to our wife and our kids. We condemn people for the same things that we're doing ourselves. When our spiritual vision is clouded, we view other people as dirty sinners that deserve to be punished for their sins. When our heart is right, though, we view other people as sinners who desperately need the blood of Jesus just like we do. And there's a big difference between those two mindsets. And if we will fix our spiritual vision so that we view others as God intended, we won't walk around pointing our fingers and condemning them with an unloving, unloving spirit. 
Instead, we'll seek to teach with a loving spirit what God's Word says about their lives and what God wants for them. It will change how we view each other. It will help us work together to achieve the mission of the church here in this place and all throughout the world. The last thing that I want for us to notice that fixing our vision helps us do is that it helps us see ourselves as God intends. Instead of having that log in our eye that it talked about in Matthew, the seventh chapter and the first, fourth verse, when we fix our spiritual vision and we, we remove that moat, we can see ourselves in a godly way. The problem, though, is that so many people look at their lives and they look at themselves and they're blinded by what's really going on. In 1 John, the second chapter, in the 11th verse, it says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness, darkness has blinded his eyes. Or maybe we like the, we're like the church at Laodicea that Jesus is talking about in Revelation, the third chapter, when he says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The church at Laodicea was self-satisfied. They looked at their church and they looked at their lives and they thought, you know what, we're in pretty good shape. We got it all figured out, right? Or do we look at our lives and we think, you know what, I've got this figured out. Are we like that? Are we like the guy that says, you know what, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I, I might make a mistake every once in a while, but you know what, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm not all like all those sinners out there in the world. I don't steal. I'm a just person. I don't run around on my wife. I even, you know, I even fast. I give money to the church. And we're like the Pharisee that Jesus talked about there in Luke, the 18th chapter. And if we're like that, you know what's going to happen? We will go on <clears throat> with our lives, never realizing our dependence on God. The Pharisee never turned to Jesus as their Lord because they didn't think that they needed him. Why, you know, why would these Pharisees, why would these religious leaders of the day need this Galilean carpenter? They were the religious bigwigs. They were God's people. Why would they need Jesus? Why would they need this guy telling them what to do? And when we think that we are self-sufficient, that we're pretty good on our own, we end up just like those Pharisees. And it will keep us from doing what Jesus said in Matthew, the seventh chapter and the seventh verse, when it said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Jesus tells us to ask. But how can we ask for something if we think that we already have everything that we need? He tells us to seek. But what are we looking for? What are we seeking if we think that we have already found everything that we need? He tells us to knock, but why would we knock if we think we've already arrived? 
It's only when we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, only when we anoint our eyes and clear up our spiritual vision that we will see clearly. It's only when we're like the publican and not the Pharisee that we'll realize our dependence on God and the need for Jesus Christ to be our Savior. And that begins with fixing our spiritual vision. And fixing our spiritual vision begins by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, talks about looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When we fix our eyes to Jesus, when we look to Jesus, we will look to His Word. And when we look to His Word, His Word will tell us that we must submit our lives to Him. And that submission of our lives begins by obeying the gospel. It begins by allowing our faith to move us to repent of our sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and submit to him in baptism. Perhaps you've never done that and you'd like to do that this morning. We'd love to to help you with that. Perhaps you have been living a life that has been not in accordance with God's will. Your spiritual vision has been clouded and you haven't been looking to to Jesus and his word, and you like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to do that this morning also. If there's anything we can do for you, please come as we stand and as we sing.